Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I do indispensable things in a place called Free Think. I am delighted to be here with you and you should be pretty delighted too. I am joined by some remarkable company as per usual. Michael Moynihan of Vice News is, is here. He's on the interwebs because he's not in the building. Matt Welch is around. Gentlemen, I hope you're both doing fine, keeping your blood pressure in check. More than doing fine, Camille. Both recovering from the uh, COVID jab. Yeah, you got your COVID vaccine. First COVID jab, yeah. Congratulations on being sterilized yeah. and buying into Bill Gates' <laughs> I, um, conspiracy. <laughs> you sheeple. I'm invincible and I'm also going to die in about six yeah. months. But, uh, well, it's just you won't be able to procreate. That's the important thing. Yeah, well, that's fine. Nobody <laughs> But the arm hurt very bad, and I slept like kind of crazy last night. The night after, yeah, it was crazy. Why is your left but eye twitching? That's the question that that really. Needs uh, that's to be because answered. I've been smoking crack for the past hour. Ah, <laughs> celebration. It's a in celebration. anticipation. <laughs> in anticipation of our guest. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I always smoke crack when it's uh, when it's <laughs> to talk to somebody from the New York Times. But. Like David Carr, only social. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's going to drop off of the line now. Maybe he's still there. Media columnist for the New York Times, Mr. Ben Smith, is joining us this week. Ben, are you still there? Did you did you leave us? I'm still here. I mean, I but if you're, I mean, this yes. means that I can be very boring, though. So this is a relief. The, the expectations are yes. low. Other sources of stimulation. Where did you get that signal? <laughs> That's why we invited you. The expectation that you will be incredibly boring honestly we invited you to ask you all of the hardest questions and to get mm -hmm. very serious answers from you and the most important question i just want to start with it right out of the gate here when you hear the names val kilmer and tombstone do you think to yourself mm -hmm. very best american actor what are you talking about of his generation or best actor in history only one of those answers is right what has happened to you Gosh, I got I have some big gaps in my pop culture knowledge and then you just yeah. you just landed in one. Oh of my movies. god. <laughs> wow. I've never seen that movie myself, so I'm on Is that true? Yeah. Really? I saw the one where he was Jim Morrison and it was awful. Oh. So <laughs> Well that's a whole nother thing. His role as Doc Holliday in Tombstone is the very best film ever and his acting in that film is just incredible. I never thought I'd quit so, this podcast yes. during the podcast. <laughs> but there you go. Yeah. During one, yeah. Fine. Or at least it'd fine. be like a blow fine. up. We don't or have to talk like about that, that, but we don't no, have to talk about that. It's a, fine. We could we could talk about session. other things because Ben, you have a wealth of things that you can share with us. I think the last time we talked to you on the podcast, you were still at BuzzFeed. Mm. And at the time you were piloting BuzzFeed and your goal was to destroy all these legacy media organizations and to completely lead the the revolution you were the the face of serious news at buzzfeed and since then you have abandoned buzzfeed or moved on from buzzfeed let me say and have joined the evil empire the new york times the paper of record i want to talk about this journey i want to understand better your new role and what it means and what you're thinking about the industry broadly 
Uh, so I'm, I'm delighted that you're able I, to join us tonight. I would tonight. say that sometimes people impose narratives on minor personnel moves in media that do not really, uh, <laughs> that don't quite live up to those narratives. I would, I would begin by saying that. But you were the oh, boss huh. of bosses. You were a media that's mogul. True. <laughs> and, like uh, and now you're uh, the new Jim Rutenberg. That's a, that's a bit of a change, right? Yeah, you know, it was. I had an enormous amount of fun at BuzzFeed and loved it. But you also you managed a newsroom for eight years, and I don't know, it's a really hard job. And I've always just loved reporting, and so at some point I realized that I wanted to be a reporter again, mm. at least for a while. And this is a incredible gig to be doing it in. So yeah, I don't I don't really have an arc. <laughs> Sorry, I'm arcless. Did you compare notes with Ezra Klein when he left Vox to come yeah, over yeah, under okay. the uh, under the tent? Or like no one talks to each other anymore. It's just all like slack. Yeah, I don't I don't know Ezra well. We've had sort of parallel careers, but I don't really know him. But um, but we were supposed to like have a Zoom to compare notes last week, but then he got really busy. And I think he's just he's probably busier than I am. He has a podcast, you know. He's ghosting you. Those things are draining. <laughs> he doesn't have all that time to go in Clubhouse and hang out. Yeah, are you spend Ben? Are you spending a lot of time on Clubhouse? I, you was when you joined the call before we started recording. You did mention Clubhouse pretty quickly. Oh, no, I just happen. Sometimes when I have a few minutes, like just before the call, I, I will dip in. And often, like last night, I was trying to make pasta and there was some room that it said New York Times in the title. So I figured this must be for me. And, um, <laughs> no, as ben. usual, it was no. like a bunch of people who I don't know at all, <laughs> you know, relentlessly attacking my bosses. Um, so <laughs> I just tried to. And, and then I don't, I'm not actually sure. You know, Clubhouse has this incredibly. Um, kind of sweet conferency culture where you're supposed to say, you know, I just, I just want to piggyback on what Michael just said and think what, you know, Camille yeah. just said is great and just want to add, even if you're disagreeing, you have to pretend to be that you're agreeing, which isn't really yeah. my style. And so I think I'm sort of too much of an <laughs> asshole in those conversations. Like it just, I had a couple of people DM me and one of them was like, you're not really allowed to cut people off and mock them on clubhouse. What? Huh? That's, that's what huh. the internet yeah. is for. Good God! Yeah, you know I mean, that's not, that's how not you entirely get true. Friends, so yeah. Well, yeah, no, I, you could be pushy on Clubhouse. I, I've had I've had a lot of interesting exchanges on Clubhouse. Some of which have ended with with my interlocutors in tears. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> or you're being denounced like by me, man. Or or I've been blocked by most of them. Dark. Cl- I'm not on that. <laughs> really yeah, the dark. Dark. That's one way to refer to it. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but, but really Ben, I, I'm interested in, in chatting a little bit about your role there and about some of the things that you've been writing over the course of the last year, because I, I really do think that your career, and I was joking about this earlier, but your career has intersected with a lot of the prevailing trends in journalism as other people might see it. And your take on how things are evolving is of particular value especially right now, seeing as though there have recently been a couple of very high profile dramas at the New York Times that have played out kind of everywhere and have been the subject of conversation in a number of different corners and including on this podcast. So I wonder if we maybe could start by you kind of contextualizing your role being the guy who surveys the media at the New York Times, like what that looks like. And obviously, because the New York Times is so influential in not just the American media landscape, but globally, that necessarily means that you're also 
covering the publication that you work for when they inevitably end up making the news and becoming part of the news. How do you balance all of that? What does all of that look like from your vantage point? So I really try not to think about any of that very much. I mean, it's like covering the times is just, I mean, the most obvious conflict of interest you can imagine. I mean, they pay me every two weeks and uh-huh. I write about them like money, you know, like, if, like <laughs> if, if you had a reporter covering a subject and they handed them a, you know, paper bag full of cash or sent them a direct deposit, <laughs> you would consider that questionable. And so that's always actually been my problem with the public editor as well. It's like, it is just the most obvious and basic conflict of interest. And maybe you can, if you're like the BBC set up some kind of, quasi independent ombudsman but i mean, very difficult to do that that said i mean i've kind of come around on that point and think it probably does make it would at least you know if nothing else get, get them lots of traffic um i just try not to think about it i you know i'm not a lifer at the, at the institution and don't because of honestly when i started really know that i mean i've been in there i don't i haven't met lots of people so i just try to cover it the way i'd cover any other story and just sort of ignore the obvious weirdness that everybody who has to deal with me whether it's people I'm calling or my bosses just sort of has to put up with in my covering them while working for them. And, you know, to varying degrees, you know, it's a strange thing, shit where you eat professionally. Like the, um, I, you know, I know lots of people in this business. I've tried to hire lots of people. I've hired lots of people, worked with lots of people at different times. So if I'm writing about different folks or quoting them, often it's people I've had some kind of other relationship with just because it's the nature of that beat. And I think that's true of most people covering it. Uh, the LA Times had a media critic who was there for about 75,000 years named David Shaw. Actually wrote a really good book about Wilt Chamberlain or with Wilt Chamberlain a long time ago. But anyways, he had a special arrangement within the newsroom, a special kind of reporting structure for when he did write about the LA Times, which would happen once every couple of years to look at their Rodney King coverage or whatever. So do you have any kind of special uh, setup there, either a protection or like this guy over here, I, I can do business with him or, or her uh, in order to make your uh, Times coverage go a certain way and, and you feel kind of protected in your approach to things without worrying about uh, getting fired? I guess I just don't really worry about getting fired. I mean, it's obviously you could imagine a situation where, and I think the situation that I would imagine being really challenging is what if I was trying to report something that my editor knew to be false or just totally, you know, didn't, not that it was embarrassing, not that they disagreed with it, but that they like, like truly thought it was inaccurate. Do you put that in your newspaper if you're them? I think that's actually kind of challenging and interesting. Um, I don't think having a workaround structure where I could put errors in the newspaper because they're about the New York Times is necessarily the right solution. I just think you have to acknowledge that it's an obvious and irreparable conflict of interest and be transparent about it and try to work around it. I don't intend to write very often about the Times, but it's just such a huge pillar of of kind of the media right now that it's impossible to avoid. As somebody who... But I I don't think it's like a good setup. I don't think there is a good version of that setup. Mm. As somebody who's obviously always worried about being fired (laughs) and what I would do next if I were to be fired, uh, let's talk about the last piece. I think it was the last piece piece that you wrote. I probably should be worried about getting fired. I guess I just, you know. Yeah, I think you should be too. (laughs) But I suspect you'd (laughs) probably find a home somewhere else pretty quickly. But uh, speaking of that, the last piece that you wrote was uh, a couple of pieces, I think, now on Donald McNeil. 
Let's talk a little bit about that because it seems to be taking up all the oxygen, both on Clubhouse and on Twitter, and maybe it's just the rooms that I go into and the people that I follow. But uh, it's it's really gone a bit a bit crazy. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, obviously, it's it's slightly different now. It must be difficult to report on this when you're not in the Times building. I mean, imagine that would actually would would be um, a slightly different feel to things when you're probably on Zoom and sending people emails and, and the rest of it. No, I think, I mean, reporting on any institution, it's so much easier now because, like, nobody's worried that their boss is going to, like, overhear them mm-hmm. or look over their shoulder and see that they're emailing with a reporter. They can just, like, mute the Zoom call and, <laughs> you know, text you screenshots from Slack. Like, it's, it's a, you know, actually, it's, I think it's much easier to leak mm-hmm. when you're working remotely. And people feel, I think, less, and I think this isn't good in general, but I think people feel kind of less bound to their institutions because they're, you know, it's a less intimate relationship. And so I think people are more willing broadly to to leak from all sorts of places. I would say I'm not, if I, I you know, it is possible that I'll write something that my bosses think is so stupid or obnoxious that they fire me. I think I will probably try to do that in my column rather than on your podcast. <laughs> and, and so, so I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not a spokesman for the times and I'm not going to like really like tr- give tons of, I don't think like I'm going to, offer a big monologue on my view of New York Times management for, you know, and how great it is or how bad it is. Yeah, I'm not sure many people in the Times are listening well, anyway. Before before we <laughs> dive into the before we dive into the specifics of any of those other things, I wanted to perhaps enter into the record. Your column back in March of twenty twenty, you wrote about the nature of the New York Times being this eight hundred pound gorilla in the entirety of the media space. And this question I've seen come up a number of times, and I even get it from our listeners because this is a podcast about media. Why are you always talking about the New York Times? And there's a sense in which you really can't avoid doing it. The quote that I have here is, the gulf between the Times and the rest of the industry is vast and keeps growing. The company has more digital subscribers than the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the 250 local Gannett papers combined, according to the most recent data. And the Times employs 1,700 journalists, a huge number in an industry where the total employment nationally has fallen to somewhere between 20,000 and 38,000. How would you update your thinking from March 2020? Has the trend with respect to how important and influential the Times is in the the whole like media landscape, has that changed in a fundamental way? Is it getting stronger Um, or are things becoming more diverse in a way that has perhaps surprised you? Um, I mean, I think the Times continues to be the place where a lot of these kind of cultural arguments play out. I think the Black Lives Matter movement over the summer played out in every workplace and every neighborhood and lots of different serious society. And to some degree, the Times is just another place where some of these conversations were happening. It's just that it gets a lot of attention. And so that's not a Times-specific thing. It's just that people are, are very focused on the Times and it has this kind of symbolic power. I mean, I think the other big trend that is playing out that maybe ultimately diminishes the Times' centrality a little, but right now also plays out through the Times, is this shift to the like the power of, of talent. And Substack is sort of emblematic of that, but kind of a, a relatively small entry that, that is important in our nerdy little world. But I think if you even look at the way, you know, major um, actors and directors, you know, increasingly like control their IP and this, you know, vis-a-vis studios. There's a shift across like all the kind of talent industries towards stars having power. And I think that's something that 
the Times is dealing with too. But that is, but maybe ultimately undermines the the centrality of these big brands in favor of individuals at some point. You wrote, I think, the article that was the first one to advance the Donald McNeil story. Uh, just to catch everybody up on the story, longtime Times reporter, been there for forty five years. Daily Beast comes out with a story in late January saying that he had used the N-word on a trip and there wasn't a lot of details else in the story. This leads to a big uproar. Eight days later, he's gone. Um, uh, That's short version. Anyways, uh, your version of it actually was the first one to come up with context about the discussion and to interview at any kind of length one of the students. And there's a lot of revealing quotes in there that maybe we'll get into later. Uh, but I just want to ask, having Donald McNeil published a four-part 20,000-word uh, <laughs> thing about how he really wanted to have a drink but didn't uh, during, the, uh, during the Peru trip, um, and just wondering from the perspective of the words that you wrote in your article, which again is good and I recommend it, um, did you learn anything from his 20,000 words that updated your thinking or that was new in an interesting way? And I'm saying this without any idea of you ever writing about this again, but just like as a consumer of that, was there a, oh, hmm, there's this thing I didn't know or, or count on in the thing that he wrote? You know, he had a lot of the details of his sort of conversations and back and forth with management, which I had a little bit of. I had reported that he had been sort of willing to apologize and there'd been a back and forth about that. You know, I had this as a reporter, a frustrating experience where I, you know, I sent him all of the things that this kid in Peru had said, and he had declined to talk about it. And I know he, he had sort of his reasons too, but um, I do think, you know, just sort of as an observer, part of the story is the way the story broke is, you know, the way in which he was silent for a long time through it, which whether that's the times or whether that's him is, is another question, but mm -hmm. like allowed, you know, it sort of developed in, in a strange way, in a way that, it's kind of unusual in this media moment for the central figure in a story to be totally silent like that. Um, I thought that I, that what he said about what happened in Peru, you know, was, was, I mean, it was the reason that I sent him all of Sophie's quotes when I read it. Cause I figured that he probably had a somewhat different memory. And I think it was kind of like consistent with the tone, but they remembered a lot of the words they had said to each other in Peru a little differently. And, and yeah. And he remembered in particular a couple with like a lot more context around a Tom Lear reference he was making <laughs> that nobody else got. For instance. Weirdly, the, the 12 year, 13 year olds didn't understand the Tom Lear reference. I would have been my kids. They would, my kids would have gotten the Tom Lear reference. <laughs> nothing else. We'll, we'll question your child rearing a little bit later, but yeah. exactly. That's we'll do that uh, later on when you're not around. Um, but one of the things that actually struck me about this, and I think that this is a change, a, a massive change, and you know, you're somebody who started your career at the forward and, and with uh, the great, hilarious weirdo Seth Lipsky. Uh, and you know, it's obviously a very different journalistic climate at the New York Times right now. But one of the things that I thought was strange about it, particularly reading McNeil's account of it, was that you know, the Times asked about his opinions said, you know, is white supremacy, is this a big force in American life? Who cares? You know, who cares what his opinions on these things are? And it seemed to be to rankle a lot of people on, on staff. And one of the things I think that I took away from his piece when he said, you know, you don't get to choose who you work with. You know, I don't want to work with him is a, is a strange thing to say. I actually kind of agree with that, is that, you know, I get stick with, stuck with people over time that I don't particularly enjoy working with and have a very different style and different political opinions, et cetera. And it seems like there's a difference now. 
And, and it's particularly when it comes to questions like that, what do you think about white supremacy? What do you think about systemic racism? If you have different views than 70% of the people at the Times, does that matter? Is that something that, the, that, you're, that a journalistic organization should be investigating when it comes to one of its reporters? Um, you know, HR investigations are, I don't know if you've ever been on on either side of them. Thankfully, I have the no. pleasure of, <laughs> of being in management and so dealing with HR a lot. And <laughs> if you sort of create a context in which an HR person or which is or sort of a, you know, sort of general, somebody from the general counsel office has the job of there has been this complaint, you know, and or these 17 complaints or these 93 complaints, you do wind up getting hauled into a room and asked a bunch of questions about those complaints. I, I mean, I guess that was how I interpreted that exchange, not necessarily this person is the thought police here to, mm. you know, to decide, you know, to sort of. But there's also an, an extra HR element to it in the way that people were talking about this on Twitter, including not a small number of New York Times journalists themselves, they're kind of going over and, oh, you know, he said that there's, I, I'm not necessarily quoting a New York Times journalist when I say this, but a lot of people were talking about that he sort of um, uh, uh, denied that, uh, you know, systems of white were privilege a lot of existed New York Times, or, or whatever. Were a lot of New York Times journalists saying that on Twitter? I guess I, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't have huge amounts of reporting on the, like, the internal time stuff, but I don't, it's just not as... And I also think, like, you know, you, that you probably would be super annoyed with many people who work at the New York Times. But I also think that some of this stuff gets blown out of proportion and gets, that you know, get, becomes this sort of caricatured narrative. Like, one of the things that when I was reporting on this, people who did not work at the Times would say to me is, you know what, this is really a story about how Nicole Hannah-Jones secretly runs the paper. And so, and in reporting on it, you know, and, and talking about, you know, in the normal thing you do reporting on it, saying, well, what happened then and who did what and going through it, her name did not come up once. And to the point where I, at the end of my reporting, went back to another source and said, hey, I have these people telling me that, like, she's secretly super involved. Am I, like, missing something that she's secretly super involved, but, like, I've, I've missed the story? And they were like, no, that's just, like, that's just what people think, right? Like she's this lightning rod who people attach all sorts of intentions and actions to. Um, so I, I don't, again, like I'm sure there's lots of interesting reporting to be done in the times. And I'm not particularly as, you know, I'm not a spokesman or really, or an apologist, just kind of an employee in a perpetually <laughs> awkward situation. But, um, but I don't think the, I don't know. I, you know, in my own experience as a manager too, when there are HR situations that become these very sort of like clean symbolic stories that drive the narrative. And I've, you know, presided over a few, you know, the reality is, and this isn't to say, this isn't like to sort of apologize for any side in this, but there, you know, but you get into the weeds of it and it's often somewhat. Yeah. I think John Elgin, someone who you quoted in your piece about this story specifically on Twitter was among the people who, who signed the, the letter just before McNeil was fired, but he spe- the letter, which by the way, did not suggest he'd be fired. Just like, well, no, I said, well, just before the firing yeah. is, is what I was saying, but yeah. he specifically raises the issue of, it's not just about him having used the N word. I'll say that out of respect for you. 
Um, but he, but he did, but he specifically raised the issue of the expressing skepticism about white privilege, which in and of itself was very problematic. That's Elgin's. Those are Elgin's I guess, words. I haven't. I mean, I, I did. I, I do not. I've never. I mean, maybe there. Maybe I missed this day of orientation. But I, there was not a. Um, nobody's really ever asked me my views on much. Um, yeah. The. But I thought what John said actually, which was in a way like the heart of it. I think for some of the black employees I talked to was like, like this, this, you know, in the series of games of telephone recounting from teenagers in Peru, which everybody realized was Mm -hmm. not necessarily accurate, but as it had come through that game of telephone, I think his feelings like, ugh, like this is sort of what you worry your white colleagues are saying about you behind your back. And I think that, in fact, what Donald, like, part of that was the game of telephone. But, like, that was, I don't know, but I don't think that was, like, a crazy, re- that seemed like a pretty honest and normal reaction for him to, for him to have. And, well, and a reason to be like, hey, ever, what was this about? I don't ever worry about the things that my, my white colleagues are saying about me behind my back. So it, it strikes me as a little yeah, strange. Seriously, but... do, you, do you know these people? <laughs> I worry generally about that sort of thing. We're, we're not white. I literally. Not white. Yeah. I mute my mic and say things about you in the, like in the past five minutes. I've actually, to no know. one in I mean, particular. You know, a lot of us, like maybe you are very thick skinned and a lot of internet people and I are very thick skinned, but I don't think it's crazy to like, to have something. I don't think that's a strange sentiment. To, I yeah. I mean, the, the stuff that, that sort of stands out to me about the whole McNeil saga, the, the two things really are actually something else that John raised, which was this question of transparency is one the other is this question of whether or not it's a resignation when, in fact, it seems to be that you have one of two choices, one being uh, some sort of extreme demotion or at least the specter of perpetual resignations. I'm sorry, investigations um, or you resign today. And resignation under those circumstances is seem- seemingly like a resignation in, in only the most technical sense. But beyond that, the transparency question seems like an important one. And I I think there's this question of, you know, the nuance and the complexity that's involved in any sort of HR situation, but then the very real fact that a media organization like the New York Times, but not just the New York Times slate is another that's had some recent issues. Your job ostensibly is to, you know, shine a light in the darkness and to like hold people accountable. And when there's a sense that there is a lack of transparency around issues like this, you know, prominent journalists or editors having to leave the organization under difficult circumstances, that becomes something that people are going to have questions about. And I'm recalling something else that you wrote specifically about the James Bennett situation. You describe a circumstance where it seemed as though there wasn't interest amongst the the Times readership or the public more broadly in this question of I think the exact quote is, but they've, the Times, found nobody wants to hear the more complex explanation for why Bennett left, as opposed to the presumption that's widely held that he was fired because of a particular op-ed column that suggested a military response was appropriate for the summer's unrest. Since you bring that line up, I think it was a little ambiguous, and some people read it to mean that there was like some secret awful thing in James's file that was the real reason, and that is definitely not what I meant. Just that, mm-hmm. you know, the official explanation even was 
that there had been sort of management failings and process failings rather than that it was that that it was that specific column i mean i think that when you're it's it is it's really unusual outside government to be operating an organization whose every action is interpreted symbolically and i guess mm-hmm. i think that that's a, you know that's something that times management has to figure out how to deal with and it's hard i mean my my sort of you know in a, in a vastly smaller organization that people cared way less about my general view was you just try to do everything you just sort of figure like you just try to do everything in public and have conversations in public and like there's nothing to leak because you already tweeted your memo but and that doesn't always work either and i think there is a sort of tradition of a tradition that i think sometimes gets mistaken for a law that like hr people and and will say well you have to keep we don't talk we don't we don't talk publicly about hr matters about private personnel mm-hmm. matters I think that's partly because an employee you fired can sue for defamation. Um, And so the general counsel says, you know, don't talk about this. Um, But I actually think that's a bad rule. Like, I think that's a bad instinct and and it's not a law. It's just like, you, you don't defame people. Like you should never defame people. But I think sometimes your audience and kind of, you know, the jackals of the internet really want to know what happened. I don't know. I think that's a maybe in some of these situations, not really a good rule. Well, there's also there, you know, you're negotiating a contract. I think that's that always gets under understood in these situations because you're negotiating the terms of your separation. I mean, I'm I was struck when I first read it in your article. Um, I think it's just a paragraph, but talking about yeah. how there was a lot of back and forth over the potential wording of a potential apology in the McNeil case. And there was also a very interesting little thing from the student that you interviewed who said something like, well, usually when the old farts say this, they apologize really quick and, and, and we get over it. But uh, this guy didn't. And that was weird. Yeah, that was uh, which sort of, I, I thought that be... was amazing. That wasn't Sophie. That was another kid who said that, yeah, we, you know, it just it was just like, a, you know, I mean, there is this sort of like you puts like a boomer in the jungle with like a bunch of like, you know, kind of feral Gen Z kids <laughs> and like watch it sounds like a horrible sitcom but there is a sort of i got a 12 year old i can see yeah yeah, i mean there's sort of a confidence about the culture that i think young and and this sort of like vastly changed culture where there's been this strange inversion where like i think young people feel a lot really young people feel a lot of confidence in telling old people hey the language has changed you can't talk like that um I think probably because the internet has like changed things so much. Like it's a weird moment in society where that's a norm, but it kind of is a norm. And it was funny for to have this kid just say it so bluntly. Yeah, and then also to have that actually work out in the real world to work effectively that way. Uh, you know, I mean that uh, uh, that's that's kind of how it played with uh, your boss, who I'm not asking you to throw under the bus because that's my job um, <laughs> to do that uh, uh, constantly. But like the role of the apology, and I was struck in McNeil's. Uh, description of it like my god the the wrestling over the apology the words of the apology the the letter from the 150 colleagues they wanted to be apologized to um for what the behavior of their colleague in a trip with teenagers in peru a year and a half previously um uh without a dwelling on a value ju- judgment, but just like, what is, what is your kind of reflection on the role of the apology right now? Not even in the specifics, but in the general, because we're seeing a lot of that 
outside of the New York Times and other newsrooms and other parts of the culture. There's just there's all this focus on the apology. It just strikes me as interesting. You know, these kind of social media rituals. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I mean, I guess it's hard to talk about in the abstract. What did you do wrong? What do you want to apologize for? Do you have something that you'd like to share? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't. Like, <laughs> I think the facts and the details matter. And there are sometimes people have actually like, like sometimes I think often in my own career, when you know, you do something really stupid or fuck something up badly, like falling on your sword immediately and apologizing profusely is the right move. And I'm for that and think it's good. And, but I think, you know, that's, but also sometimes obviously there's this kind of social media ritual of a, kind of ritualized apology that I don't know. I, I don't think there's any apology that would have resulted in forgiveness in this uh, most recent example. Um, in this case? Yeah, yeah. I don't, oh, it doesn't, I, actually, I mean, again, I keep know. in mind think, that that's think, an instinct. I, think if, I, think, I don't know that for a fact. It's just an instinct that I have. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that. I mean, I don't know. I, like in, in talking, see, I think like I've talked to lots of the folks involved and I do think that there was this thing internally where there were people saying it's so weird that he hasn't said anything. And meanwhile, there was this statement being negotiated with PR for a week. And had he at the beginning of the week just mm -hmm. said, like, ugh, I didn't realize this was so offensive and I'm sorry about that, would people have felt and, – and, like, happy to talk about it more? Would people have felt differently internally? I think probably, actually. But there wasn't, like, a, I don't – I don't know. I guess I'm reluctant to – I don't – I think that a lot of these things are management questions and I'm a little reluctant to like kind of go spitballing about my own body yeah, yeah. as management questions outside yeah. my column. But no, I don't no, think no, it was I, like, it wasn't like yeah. there was not a howling mob, you know, surrounding the building demanding his head. Right. It was like not that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But just to add to that, because you said something uh, earlier, which I thought was interesting, that, you know, people kind of blow these things up into much bigger events than they actually are. And they kind of enlarge them in their head and in their in their tweets and in their own narrative that they've created. And I think some of that probably comes from and I'm, I'm, I'm confessing in a way that I perhaps guilty of that, too, is that when you see somebody who's had a 45 year uh, career at The Times and who has gone through the ringer in 2019 and then it comes up again because of a Daily Beast article and then seems to be, um, you know, a bit of double jeopardy. And then when the editor in chief of the, the newspaper says uh, context doesn't matter, I think that is kind of what alarms people is, is not necessarily this case. It's just the sort of larger thing that people suspect is happening. Oh, I don't mean it's not, I actually wasn't trying to say it wasn't a big deal or that it was small. I'm just saying that the like in a way that like, I mean, symbols are important and like. If you're in the in, in the times as an institution has taken on all this symbolic power, so these things matter. And yeah, that's mm -hmm. all I was trying to say. I, you know, I'm like, it's, I don't want to. I just I just have to tread so carefully in talking about the times in a way that I don't on any other subject. So I would like be happy to move on if you have other if there are other things you want to talk about. I mean, like it just in that like I wrote a few yeah. thousand words on this. I'm not sure I have like that much more to say. One thing uh, uh, about um, the modern media landscape, which I'm curious about, um, that sort of like pivots uh, from the times is that it always changes after the White House changes hands. Um, and traditionally, it's like the cable news networks change. Uh, they have to change strategy and the opinion magazines, I can say, having edited one, um, uh have to be conscious of their strategy. The ones who are more partisan, um, you know, will definitely get in in it. 
Um, what's your assessment of the way that mainstream, what we used to call mainstream um, news organizations um, who are not or have not been traditionally identified with as going to bat for Team X or Team Y, but have been trying to deliver the news best they can, um, how they um, are approaching and strategizing the post-Trump universe in a way that maybe looks different than what we've seen in previous transfers for for cable news in particular no for actually newspapers in particular i mean cable news like you know they're they uh, fox news is interesting but i'm interested in the newspaper uh, aspect or or you know the the atlantic just sort of traditional um uh semi down the middle organizations yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the end of the pandemic is this massive, massive story. So obviously, I mean, it's like, I mean, Trump was basically sort of covered, I think, appropriately as a crisis, like an always on rolling crisis, as is the pandemic. Um, and I think that like the political team has sort of, you know, Biden's just less, people are less interested in reading about Biden, for good reason. And, um, but the pandemic I think, you know, is obviously and right now is sort of this crescendo of news. And, and um, I think that's actually sort of allowed everybody to somewhat avoid answering the question of what do we do, like when things become normal. Um, but I think, I mean, you know, I, I don't I haven't talked to the people running the Times. I don't so I don't really speak for the Times or have any real insight there. Um, but I think you know, what people are interested in is going to change quite a bit. And I think there's lots of space for coverage of things other than politics, which will be, and, and probably like the balance of coverage and of audience are going to shift back away from politics. I would think that would be nice. Um, yeah, that would be great. But I also think there's particularly, you know, in this sort of world that revolves around cable news, which I think of as, you know, it and Twitter sort of circle each other. There's just like this sort of structural demand for conflict. And so, you know, I think, Cable will probably get pretty good at booking members of the left wing of the Democratic Party who will attack Joe Biden. And, you know, and like they're going to have to find ways to elevate conflict because um, I think that's kind of the structure of the whole political media. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm wondering, Ben, if there if. Because we talked we talked a lot about the the, the time stuff, so I don't need to, to go back into that. But we've certainly seen um, some things play out in different newsrooms, like in various organizations. I mentioned earlier the circumstance at Slate, which I know you wrote about recently with uh, Mike Pesca. And um, I'm wondering just about like the culture of newsrooms broadly and the kind of shifts that seem to have been be happening. We, we talked a little bit about kind of the a lot of the changes that were happening, the roiling of newsrooms around um, you know, the summer of last year went the the enthusiasm around Black Lives Matter really started to take hold. Um, enthusiasm is one word for it. Perhaps there are others I could use. Um, but the way in which that was adjudicated and or is at least being adjudicated, the sort of very swift way in which he exited. And we saw something similar at Reply All um, with this like really swift exit made by a fairly prominent uh, contributor there. It's two guys who'd been working together for about a decade, like making a product. Like all of it sort of seems familiar um, in a way that is in some, in some corners viewed as, well, this is progress. This is what progress looks like. When someone makes a mistake, we get them out of there really quickly. 
Um, and for other people, myself included, it's somewhat disconcerting. Like there seems to be just this appetite for punishing people um, and for like, you know, the guillotine um, rather than working through things or even like a very specific articulation of exactly what went wrong. Instead, you get these kind of generalizations about the awful things that were imaginably happening behind closed doors. And the fact that it's so widespread is something that seems like important and relevant to me. And I'm wondering if that's something that you are seeing across the the media landscape broadly and if it if it isn't related to something that I also heard you articulate specifically about what the future may hold for publications like the Times that have tried to, you know, play it down the middle to be the more moderate voices um, and a demand perhaps either as a result of what the market is looking for, what audiences are looking for, what the opportunities are from a revenue standpoint in terms of, you know, really having to satisfy subscribers to become something that is more like ideologically driven. Is that something that's playing out across the media landscape so far as you can tell? Because it certainly seems that way to me. I, I feel like that was a very long question and, and it's hard to argue that. It like, is long. I, I, Sorry. Perhaps, perhaps that was more of a statement than a question. There's some statements in there. There's some statements in there. Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> so let me, let me narrow it. I'll put a fine sure. point on it. I see a lot of people exiting their newsrooms, their media organizations rather abruptly in a way that often concerns me. And it seems as though there may be a connection between that and something that I think you described in one of your recent columns where you talk about even an organization like the Times that has, you know, this mandate to be middle of the road, to kind of be this this even-handed referee. But there is perhaps a temptation, perhaps, I don't know if that's the right word, but to satisfy subscribers, to perhaps be a bit more ideological as a publication. And as a result, like that need or that desire to be more ideological can manifest itself internally as kind of this this purity test for the people who work on staff. And it can create these circumstances where these purges, essentially, of people who for one reason or another, don't seem to like measure up and meet the standard. And I'm, I'm wondering if you think that, that that analysis seems to correspond to what you're witnessing in the media landscape broadly, or where, where again, there's some concern because of the way these purges are happening, that there's something a bit more puritanical um, about like attitudes in newsrooms, or is this just kind of a, a standard cultural shift and not something to be particularly concerned about or is there nothing to see here at all and i'm manufacturing a narrative you know i think like in this sort of biggest picture thirty thousand foot sense sure like he who pays the piper calls the tune in a and i think that's broadly true across media i think you know maybe jeff bezos is an ordering up stories on amazon at the washington post this week and in fact i think never did under in the marty baron era and kept totally independent in the long term, would you expect the Post's values to line up with Amazon's? Like, yeah, that's who owns it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, in the Times, you know, there's this sort of a culture. I mean, culture, you know, there's a little, like, culture is very powerful in the Times, both the people who own the place 
and the newsroom have a culture of sort of, you know, independence from advertisers that has also translated into a sense of sort of independence from subscribers. I think, I do think in the long term, there's this pull from subscribers and from a subscription model toward it's a more ideological kind of British, I would say, newspaper journalism. Um, it's not really the culture of the place of American places, though. And so I don't think and these things don't change on a dime. Um, and then there's also I don't think the staff and the subscribers are exactly the same. I think, you know, New York Times subscribers skew older. If you look at, for instance, um, the comments under the there was a story about Andrew Cuomo sort of um, kissing a woman at a wedding who, who didn't welcome it. And I think if you read the the comments under that story, so a lot of subscribers think that it's not news and ridiculous that the Times covered it. Like, I think that, you know, I, I don't think it's, I think the subscribers are split on some of these things. It's, it, that's interesting. Although that actually seems to me to correspond to like a, a subscribership that even you, you have both as, aspects of that with the Cuomo story in the like mainstream democratic party as well. Right. Or at least in the democratic party proper as well. Like you have AOC on one side who is perfectly happy to go after Cuomo and you've got plenty of other establishment Democrats who would like to see this go away as quickly as possible. Um, and many rank and file Democrats who think it doesn't matter. I didn't mean politically. I think I'm, I'm at a sort of like a matter of kind of social values. Like, you know, is it, is it like, mm -hmm. you know, some of the comments were of the line, like, you know, some were, this is really awful and part of his sort of pattern of abuse. And others were like, have you ever been to an Italian wedding? There's something wrong with it. <laughs> I can't believe that mm -hmm. after all your time on the internet, Ben, that you're still mm -hmm. reading the comments. I don't know whether to like, yeah, uh, I, I do too, get yeah. you committed yeah. or, to, uh, <laughs> you know, the, it Buzzfeed Dow Win, who was the, who ran the sort of tech of Buzzfeed, her line was always read the comments. Why? Because it's a good way to figure out what, you know, good way to figure out what your audience is thinking. Although I, I did, I sort of came up in the don't read the comments school and often, and often don't. Particularly that. the times, because I think you can only, you can only comment if you're a subscriber, right? You can't use your free articles to, to. Yeah. And then even then, and even then you've got to be kind of registered. And, mm. Yeah. And then to prove in the comment, I mean, they're, they're, they have really good comment moderation, actually. The comments are good, like tend to be pretty good content. Uh, you made the observation also uh, in one of your recent pieces about the guardianization uh, or the Britishization of American media, um, something that, you know, people have been predicting or talking about a lot over the last 25 years. The Internet would push us in that direction, that there'd be more opinionated news on uh, that. These old kind of boring newsrooms would have to do that. Um, but that's uh, actually pretty significant uh, cultural shift in terms of fact gathering uh, operations. Um, to a degree that I'm not sure people have really uh, thought through. Um, you know, I, I had long uh, argued that, like, it's kind of cool because British uh, newspapers are more kind of interesting and funny on some level, but compared to the uh, uh, amount of, like, journalistic quality compared to American newspapers of, say, like the 1990s, they just didn't hold a candle. Maybe they still don't. I don't read them as much as I used to. Uh, what uh, What is your sense, Ben, of like how much people uh, within newsrooms out there, whether in management or on or, or uh, grunts, um, uh, 
would like to see a, 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 a Britishization, a Fleet Streetization, or just a more like open opinion on your sleeve type of reporting, uh, or like how much they've even thought it through and what that would look, how that would look differently than what we've, you know, all were born and raised on in American newspapers. Um, you know, I think I think it varies a lot, and I, I don't think I think a lot of people haven't, you know, don't spend their time thinking about it. They spend their time thinking about the, you know, you know, covering city hall or whatever it is they actually, you know, that they do all day. Um, but I also think like one of the challenges right now is that a lot of publications aren't terribly clear about because things are changing about their own values and their own point of view on that question. And I think you know, you could be excused as an employee of a lot of these places at, at being confused about what the policy is. Like, do you want my voice or do you want me to, or do you just, or are we trying all of the same voice? You know, is it just the facts, ma'am, even though that's not a style that anybody wants to read on the internet or should I throw punches? Should I, if I think something is racist, say it like, like, I don't think those, I don't think, I mean, I think it's a moment of transition and that's not super clear. Like I think when, at BuzzFeed, we had the benefit of being new and being pretty and being and, you know, and being having a clear identity that was, I think, fairly clear internally. And there were like lots of sort of unwritten rules and kind of lines of what it, what I thought, hmm. you know, what I thought, what we thought was kind of crossing a line of fairness. And but but the cult, but somehow I think because we were small and new, it was fairly easy to. In, not enforce isn't even the right word, you know, to sort of maintain. And I think that's, I think a lot of, you know, I think as publications get better at saying who they are and what they're trying to do, it's going to be easier for employees to understand what they're supposed to be doing and where they want to work. I, I wonder in a way if how much of this is one can attribute to Donald Trump. And this is the, the question I keep asking myself is that, you know, obviously in the Trump years, every, I mean, at times less so than, than a lot of other places where the, the Chirons on uh, CNN would say, you know, Donald Trump lies about this um, you know, in a very sort of aggressive way. And, and you know, usually rightfully so. Um, and calling these things out, calling these things out as lies and, and being, you know, not even more opinionated, but more sort of straightforward with readers that we know this to be not true, and we're going to tell you. And I wonder how much of that was was shifting in media anyway. And because social media, I think has an influence on that, too. And the other thing is, do you think that this kind of stuff is going to going to remain? I mean, your point about Biden is is right, people want to read about him less. And so there's going to be that uh, factor, too, that it's not going to be as aggressive. He's obviously not going to lie as much as Donald Trump. I mean, that's almost impossible for, for a, a president to do. But do you think that that certainly kind won't of, lie in the same way? Well, in the same way. But uh, do you think that, that that kind of culture that came up in the Trump era, I mean, as a journalistic response to Donald Trump's lies, do you think that that's changed the, the kind of way that reporting happens in, in the, uh, you know, in a more permanent way? Or is that just was that just four years and and it's going to kind of fade in the background? You know, I guess I, I think it's some of both, and also I think I, I think it's it's hard in this moment to undisentangle how much of the fact that we've all lost our minds is due to this pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, like yeah. I, I just don't know Trump the answer the to that question, yeah. but sometimes it's like, wow, this has been like quite a year, you know, and you can't really do counterfactuals, but do you have? the storming of the Capitol without the pandemic, right? Like, uh -huh. I don't know, like, how do you, okay, that's not a counterfactual you can run, but I mean, this, the, I mean, the pandemic has but that is, driven us that all That does strike totally me as insane. like an urgently yeah. important question, Ben. And apart from you asking it like here, like 
I, I wonder how many like mainstream journalists are actually wrestling with that because the, I mean, the dominant narrative about like, yeah. it's not impossible to wrestle with, but it's not really happening. Like the, 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 I don't know. I don't think it's really, it's just, you just sort of got to like check your analyses of anything that's happening. I think and sort of realize this is a super weird year. Yeah. Um, but then you can't, you, there's no way to, you know, run the experiment. I mean, I guess you can like mm-hmm. look at Australia or something where they did a good job. Um, and see if they all lost their minds too. Um, well, I think Martin Gurry, Martin Gurry kind of gives us a bit of a framework for that, right? I mean, there's we've seen similar sorts of things with like yellow vests overrunning the equivalent of a capital under different circumstances, and we see a lot of kind of mass movements happening in various contexts that are very strange. And even I think like the summer's unusualness last year. I, I think in many ways kind of foreshadowed the ongoing like civil unrest that we seem to just be dealing with and like fits and starts. Like there does seem to be a pattern there, but to call yeah, attention to that pattern in many instances way, is regarded as, yeah, like something wrong. Like you're, you're trying to obfuscate the awfulness of what's going on. Right. Obviously there's this huge global wave of populism that predates the pandemic. I just mean, and, and so, and, and that is driven by social media and by all sorts of dislocation. It's just, it, I think it's just a little it like, yeah, I, I just meant that in talking about how media is changing, it's, I just sort of once in a sort of, I don't know, it can be a little, it, it's hard to disentangle the pandemic. Um, no, you're right. And I, I actually think that, that, that we would all be better to sort of build in a 10% uh, yeah. error on our own brain. Um, from the last year like i don't fucking know i don't fucking know you see that there's a covid going on yeah. i don't fucking know although Moynihan, i got the vaccine now so it's now all gonna become it's all gonna become i know i know still how still wear mask outside. we're, we're gonna yeah. <laughs> um well ben i think we've we held you for probably close to an hour which is what we told you we would let you we'd let you go um i, I have one question i'm desperate to ask you if you'll indulge me and if you I got, if you don't, I got if you don't want to Uh-oh. okay good <laughs> um caliphate is a project that you wrote about and i have found myself like confused for some time about like the nature of the scandal and i went back and i read the story that you wrote about it um and i've tried my best to kind of wrap my head around the the defects that are there specifically this question about whether or not this this gentleman who was the centerpiece of so many of the stories ever went to syria or did any of the other things that he actually claims to have done um the thing about the podcast that's always stood out to me is the fact that the questions were always there in the podcast like the very last words about this gentleman um, in the podcast, this conversation between um, Mills and Rachmani is, you know, well, what do you make of this? Like, is is he the guy? What's what's your final thought on this? And the response is, well, my notebook remains open. And it seems to me that yeah. there was a very deliberate choice made because I, I know podcast editing, but I also know Andy a bit. And we've talked about this, but it seems to me that there was a very deliberate choice made. And he's confirmed this as well at, long before any scandal to have this be about like this quest to try and get hard answers to difficult questions, this journey, which is what journalism is really all about of engaging in the investigation and figuring things out. And 
it just, it's always struck me as a bit odd that caliphate ends up turning into this massive scandal because of what in a sense is like, it's a mistake. If you presume that it was definitely the case that he's the guy, as opposed to what we actually say, which is we don't know. And our notebook remains open versus what happened with like 1619. Whereas like there have been lots of questions there for a very long time. And institutionally, the times has largely defended that public, that um, piece of journalism without, with the exception of like Brett Stevens writing something critical about it in the paper. But even that was rebutted very forcefully. And it's just, it's always struck me that the response was so very different between those two things. And I, maybe it's something that I'm reading wrong about the caliphate circumstance. God, your, your audience is just going to think I'm so slippery because I'm really not a slippery person. <laughs> well, of these like are hard questions for you to answer because you work constantly. there. Um, I know a lot. Of, I don't I mean, I, I, the, the thing I know a lot about is Caliphate. I mean, I think they mm-hmm. sort of think, I think, I think the, on one hand, being duped by a sociopath is really something that can happen to you in this business. Like it's a, it's a night, it's sort of your worst nightmare, but I think that people overestimate in general the extent to which there are safeguards against it in journalism like you Mm -hmm. talk to people all day people tell you their stories you check them out you try to corroborate them if somebody is a really really committed sociopathic liar very hard to catch them and Mm -hmm. and you know and it's it's a total nightmare to have that happen to you and this guy was a he was crying his hands were shaking he had tricked a number of like really prominent this um very prominent canadian counterterrorism experts you know um, terrorist deprogrammers were busily deprogramming him, and 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 who, themselves former t- former militants mm-hmm. who bought his story. So, like, I actually think that getting duped by him, there's a little bit of a kind of there, there but for the grace of God, go I quality to it. Um, you know, the story that I wrote was really about the Times' coverage of ISIS a bit more broadly. Like, I thought that this was emblematic of the paper falling for ISIS's story about itself. Like a lot of the story of ISIS was I've infiltrated a private ISIS telegram channel and they're saying all this crazy stuff there. And they're also talking about how they've like created a real functioning government of the state. And like maybe it, to some degree, I think it turned out that the, that private secret telegram channel had been created to give the impression to reporters that they were in on secrets. And it'd been, you know, as opposed to it, you know, I think there was a perform, there was a, ISIS did great PR. And I think when you're dealing with terrorist groups and all sorts of groups, you have to be careful about whether you're, you know, whether you're inadvertently amplifying their PR. And and I think in this case, that's sort of, a caliphate was sort of that. I mean, there's just a moment in the podcast where the host worry, the doorbell rings at their home in New Jersey and the host is like concerned that that this could be ISIS, you know, coming. Yeah, I remember them. that. And I think, like, on one hand, in the narrative of it, it's very powerful in the sense in which you're sort of portraying a reporter's mental state that, like, that mm-hmm. they, you know, like they're, they're so, so deep in the into story, the story, you're worried about yeah. it. But also, if you pull back, the number of people in New Jersey who were killed in their homes by ISIS is zero. Zero. Yeah. And. You know, I do think and I think, you know, you said that, like, the point of journalism is the quest for truth. And I do think there is a kind of audio in particular, like Radio Lab is sort of the I think the home of this. 
that is about like, well, what is truth anyway? And how can we ever know? But that's really not, I think, how the Times sees itself. Hmm. I think the Times doesn't see the goal of this as taking the reader on a, a fascinating and tortuous quest to understand what truth is. I think the Times sees its job as telling you what the truth is. And but so, it's showing the reporting, right? I mean, because that's what the FX show was, the Times uh, television yeah, show. Think, you know, the the, you know, the journalists were in it. They were making the calls and you saw the process. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I'm, that's as an ancillary thing the Times can do, I think, interesting if people are that interested in reporting. But mm -hmm. I, there was nothing in that show where the story ultimately didn't pan out, right? Like, which is a totally normal thing to have happen when you're doing a story. But when you've made a big, big production decisions is a lot harder. And, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't, I mean, they, there was this uncertainty all that was edited into and was written into Caliph. But there's also an ad, you know, there, a lot of it was added very, very late. And they were very, in the process, you know, it's product, the nature of production, you get kind of committed to the story. Um, and I think, you know, had we said, they said at the beginning, by the way, we're like 95% sure this guy's a sociopathic liar. Should we go ahead with it? <laughs> I, I don't think they would have. And you don't know anything about narrative. You can't do that. You spoil the whole damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> I need to keep coming back week after yeah. week but to I get the whole story. Think, they already told me it's not true. I do think that the sort of under, it's just sort of a harder story. And it's not so much about like media people in New York. But I do think the question of how, how ISIS got covered, how did it contribute mm -hmm. to U.S. policy in the, in the region, is pretty interesting and worth another look and complicated too. Like Rukmini Kalamaki, who was the sure. host, um, was very early to ISIS and to seeing their power on social media. And there were a lot of reporters in the Middle East who were really skeptical. They, you know, there were a yeah. million splinter groups and terror groups. They were one of a million. Maybe they're better at Twitter, but who cares? And I think Rukmini mm -hmm. was really kind of right early yeah. that they were yeah. going to be a major force. But then also their story became so compelling to a lot of reporters that I think we, a lot of people kind of hyped up their version of the story, which, by the way, Trump was also hyping up. There was a big right-wing American interest in this gory narrative of a new Islamic superstate. And sure. there was a funny sure. kind of alliance of convenience that I think led people to overestimate the, um, the reality of it. This guy, this guy named Theo Padnos, who was a freelance journalist who mm. was captured by isis and hell or i'm not sure if it was by isis but by one of those groups it, it was, was not but it was but it was a it was a it was a splinter group in syria yeah. he's being tortured in a basement by a bunch of goons who like have no chain of command and it's total chaos and he realized and there's not it's just like a bunch of roving goons and it's being portrayed you know it's totally detached from the way it's being seen by his peers in the western media and he's meanwhile being tortured in the basement and I do think that, like, I don't think that, I actually don't think the, this is a thing that's been the media has really looked back at very much. You know, we've had a lot going on, mm. but to me, that's actually a bigger and more interesting story than, like, you know, how, than than this sort of very, very, very strange situation of being tricked by a lunatic pretending to be a terrorist. I mean, there's sort of a parallel here too, isn't there? With and you know, this is not about the Times, but the Times is obviously involved in this because it's involved in every major journalistic uh, story. <laughs> but uh, it's very similar to Iraq, right? I mean, because if you look back 
um, in your own reporting on caliphate, there were members of, in, of intelligence organizations that were saying, yeah, that this is this guy's for real. But as you point out, where are they yeah. getting the information from? And this is, of course, the case mm-hmm. in Iraq is that, you know, the, the thing that happened, Bush lied and people died. It's like, well, I mean, Bush is also being fed information that was being repeated by the BND in Germany, by the CIA in the US, etc. And there was perhaps a desire to find something that might not have existed. But there was, you know, confirmation from from people that seemed to be uh, yeah, legitimate. You go out there looking. And when you're when you know, when you kind of know the answer, and you just go out at 100 miles mm-hmm. an hour with a bunch of great reporters, looking for confirmation, and yeah, he, in this case, you, know, you have a reporter yeah. call around the intelligence community. Say, Anybody ever heard of this guy? Do we think this guy was there? Often you find what you're looking for. And I, mm-hmm. and I don't think actually anyone in that situation, I don't, the reporter didn't do anything wrong at all. Like the, it, he did get a call back from intelligence community and, and wasn't asked, I think, to push, like didn't realize the entire story was hanging on the thread of that confirmation didn't say like, Hey, are you just also like, we're getting this from his Instagram. Are you getting it from his Instagram? Cause by the way, like pretty reliable source, the guy's posting on Instagram that he's murdering people in Syria. Like who would do that? Yeah. Generally um, don't lie about that sort of thing. No. I mean, you don't confess mm. to crimes, you know? And, and, and there was this then very bizarre situation in Canada where after Caliphate comes out, the conservatives in Canada are like, we have, how can we, how can, has our liberal, you know, communist government f- so degraded itself and fallen down on the job <laughs> that you've got this violent murderer want, you know, working in his parents, like gyro shop in Toronto mm. and, you know, the RCMP, you, you know, it's some, it's like undertaking all this pressure. And I think the, you know, the cops are saying to their bosses, like, look, we, we think he's been selling gyros the whole time. <laughs> and finally they're like, well, we got to charge him with something because we hey, there's so much heat on us. <laughs> selling and gyros without a license. So they're like, well, we, well, let's, we have this hoax law we never use. <laughs> let's charge him with that. <laughs> And that's sort of how the whole thing blew up. And, you know, is it specific to your question? Is it specific to um, the Times is reporting on ISIS? I mean, you know, it's the premise of Evelyn Waugh's book, Scoop, right? I mean, you said what Theo, who I've talked to. um... I don't think this I don't think that's particular. I don't think the ISIS reporting thing is is unique to the Times. Or or, or is it unique to ISIS? There was a lot of attention to the Times on this. Yeah. I mean, is it unique, uh, you know, outside of the Times, too? Is it unique to reporting about about ISIS, about a group that, you know, is you need the you need the blood, the guts, the gore and, you know, it gets clicks and it uh, creates uh, interesting podcasts and good headlines. You know, I mean, it, you know, was scoop and or the number of people that were were snowed by, you know, the Soviet Union and Potemkin villages there or Mao's China. Um, it's a pretty common thing in a way, you know, that people get uh, get uh, you know, yeah, checked absolutely. by by wherever they're going and whoever they're being led around by. It's why junkets exist, right? Yeah. <laughs> to tr- to gull the silly journalists. Yeah, and I think you can Ju- junkets to Syria and, and Iraq. Agendas, Israel. Yeah, and I think often our sources understand our motives better than we realize, and are using us more mm-hmm. than we realize. You know, I think mm-hmm. as, as journalists. I think that's always true. Yeah. 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 Well, Ben, I appreciate you indulging me there. Um, and thank you for hanging out with us in general. This was a, a, a tall order for you um, to have to to have to navigate all of this stuff. Um, and uh, I don't want to do anything to jeopardize your ability to collect uh, collect bags in the future. <laughs> that is actually how I'm compensated. It's just 
paper bag. I know. Yeah. I mean, it's and it's the best. It's the best. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, man. Appreciate right. you. I appreciate the difficulty of Ben's predicament. Granted, he's writing about these topics and he's, you know, media pundit or media columnist, I should say, not merely a pundit. But it is hard to talk about the thing at your place of employment involving your employers, especially when in certain instances you are explicitly criticizing your employers, which in a number of instances you necessarily are. The challenge for the Times as an organization in the McNeil situation, as well as with our, our friend Andy Mills and even the Caliphate thing, is at least with McNeil and Mills, they directed those guys to not talk in the immediate aftermath of the scandals starting to brew. Yeah. And I've talked to Mills about this before I saw McNeil's write-up. He gave me an account of the experience he was having that looked virtually identical yeah. to what McNeil describes with respect to talking to his bosses, getting a sense from them that, hey, no, 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 you shouldn't say anything about this. Don't say anything you know, about I, this. I will say that- and, then when, and when the newsroom understandably loses confidence in you mm. because you were never out there defending yourself publicly and there's one account that's been established and it's the one that's been spun by the Daily Beast- in some instances, because of leaks from the institution to the beast. I mean, that's a super fucked up situation. Look, you've I, lost it, the newsroom to the Daily Beast. To, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> look, and we didn't allow you to defend yourself. We didn't. We don't have to talk yeah. about this in the context of Ben. He's gone now. We've made that mistake in the past, so we won't do that. But I will yeah. return to something that I did mention to Ben. Um, the thing that, that, that alarms me about this is this thing, and I did ask about this, um, you know, and, and you can decide whether or not it's a satisfactory answer. But the fact that people are asking you about your political opinions and try and, and asking you to, not to justify them, but to say in an accusatory way, do you believe this about you right. know, white supremacy or, or systemic racism or something? Because that sounds to me, uh, Mr. Reporter, uh, that you don't have the correct view on this. And when people in the newsroom said it was much more than what he said, well, yeah, that was what that was the more was, is that he had bad, bad opinions. And that uh, 150 people signed a letter, they might not have been calling for him to be fired. But was there enough information for adult reporters to sign a letter and say 150 people saying, we need to go further on this investigation that's already happened in the past. You'd already put a lot of money, time, effort, interviewing, et cetera, talking to students. You need to do it again. Why do they have that instinct with the uh, amount of information that they've gotten from the Daily Beast? I mean, it's 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 total madness. Uh, it's uh, and also that, you know, not, not only they need an apology, but, you know, they are expressing their uh, severe harm. Like they had, harm is they the had word, yeah. experienced harm as part of what a 67-year-old man said to teenagers in Peru. <laughs> there's there's literally ago. nobody in our age group, which is above the age of uh, 22, who thinks that this is normal behavior for reporters, for people or people within a journalistic organization to say, I feel like you've done harm because, you know, two and a half years ago you had a conversation in which you tried to, you know, debate a moral issue 
in you know journalism or in the punishment of a student or whether certain words should ever be uttered. And nobody at the Times has ever, ever said, here is why we use it in our own publication, use the full word in our own publication. And when Donald McNeil mentioned it in a context that was perfectly normal and perfectly fine and was not racially motivated, that was not okay. Yeah, why? And- why? Someone has to explain that. And the editor-in-chief said, at least for a few days, that uh, uh, specifically, explicitly, that intent in this case does not matter, which is an amazing thing for someone who's head up of that kind of journalistic institution. He went back on it, but there's not a lot of, um, let's say, uh, clarity uh, about that position going forward. My feeling about the the, uh, uh, McNeil four-part medium series or Substack series, whatever it was, um, uh, was that it was very interesting. Medium. Medium. Uh, super interesting. Um, it basically confirmed um, my instinct upon reading the Daily Beast story, which is that curmudgeon was out with a teenager, with a woke teens, and it didn't go well. Um, yeah. It seemed like that's what it was, and that the context, which was missing, again, until Ben had re- reported it out, Three weeks later, three weeks into the story is the first time we get context for his remarks, which is amazing. Uh, So many people wrote and so many journalists asserted on Twitter that this guy was a racist based on on that very small amount of information in which we had no context. There's an enormous joy that people get from throwing that accusation at people. It's something I'll I'll never understand. Which is a very common thing. It was in the uh, the wonderful Michael Powell article about Smith College Mm -hmm. in the New York Times that happened last week. Um, uh, just the casual accusation of racism ruined the lives of a couple of working class, you know, janitors, waitstaff uh, at Smith College. Um, and I think that's a great takeaway um, that will not be taken away by people as they look, uh, many people as they look at the story is how casual and damaging it is um, and just how like second nature it has become uh, yeah. to call people racist um, in modern society and within modern journalism. Well, the, the um, New York Times just confirmed is- that, that one should do that because if you look at what happened in the case of um, uh, Donald McNeil, there is a lesson here and they've drawn the exact wrong lesson. And the lesson is when you look back, what they, what the lesson they drew was that we need to talk to him about how he talks to students. And what he chooses to discuss and the way he chooses to frame these discussions. The actual lesson is you have to teach young people that they need to be able to exchange ideas with somebody without ratting them out, without going and saying, this person harmed me, this person hurt me. And these are all rich white kids, by the way. And, you know, they're, they're saying this guy who's, who's like, we, we didn't like his disposition. We didn't like the way he acted. Like, do you remember ever having teachers when you were in middle school, high school, who were like weird and you'd made fun of them and the rest of it? It's like, that was never a crime. And they were like, well, you know, he was weird and we didn't like talking to him. And then, you know, he said these things that we disagreed with and it really harmed us. And these kids who were privileged enough to pay six grand to go to Peru with journalists in the New York Times, God, you know, the thing that they need and their parents talk to the Times, et cetera. These people should be ashamed of themselves. And I would wish that one of them, just one of them, would come forward and say, you know what? I was younger then. I've been to college now. I know how this kind of debate and discourse works. And I'm really sad that a guy who's a 45-year veteran of a newspaper, and this was the only thing he lived and breathed in his life, that he n- no longer works at that newspaper because I was like a, a, an upset 15-year-old. 
But it's insane. There was, a, there was a statement that the Times gave to Eric Wemple at the Washington Post. I'm going to read just a sentence of it, um, but I'm going to do it in computer voice um, because I think <laughs> – okay, computer voice to, to be precise um, because I think it says a lot. They like asked him for their reaction to this. As more recent information about his behavior emerged, it became clear that Donald had not learned from his prior mistakes oh, yeah. and could no longer effectively work in our newsroom. He didn't learn. He needs you to go to re-education camp. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's – you're just – you're. I guess you're owning it. And that's that's my kind of uh, uh, broad preliminary hypothesis about the way his essay will play out within the times among the faction that that forced him out. Yeah, they speak Whether a they, different it, language. I mean, it is a totalitarian is, would, language. Like, but like they will read. I think that it's that uh, I can't fathom someone reading his admittedly long uh, account of events, comparing it to what happened, and just sort of like seeing the basic facts on the ground. This had been adjudicated two years ago. It resurfaced. People lost their shit and went like in bananas and fired him in eight days on a double jeopardy union case. I can't imagine it's people amazing. reading that and concluding that the Times or the people pushing him out were in the right. But they are going to read that, I believe, as uh, as uh, they're going to high five themselves because precisely because of yeah, that, yeah. precisely because of that. Yeah. Why is the insincere um apology why is the ritual self-confession of a crime you didn't commit why is it so important it's important because it demonstrates the power of the person who forced it to happen yeah right exactly they right. know that anyone watching this is going to say oh he fucking didn't do it you you're like torturing his dog mm-hmm. in the alley that sucks mm-hmm. and they're like yeah yeah we can torture dogs in the alley fuck you that's that's my reading of this, and that's not generous. No, but it's clear. right though, because it's like we're supposed to, you know, people who believe in criminal justice reform are supposed to look at the literature on false confessions, and you know what happens <laughs> when you start turning the screws on somebody, and they'll tell you anything, and that's you know what we see, and we see this in real time when we actually have the account of it. But you know, it, it reminds me of the thing that made all the Randians and objectivists hate National Review. Uh, when Whitaker Chambers reviewed Ayn Rand <laughs> and Atlas Shrugged, and the famous line the is that from, go. yeah, from that from every page you hear uh, shouting to the gas chambers go, and there is there is this is the kind of element of that that I see. I mean, obviously, incredible overstatement, but it's what I see from these people. It's that you know these are people that have a totalitarian instinct. It doesn't mean in any way that I'm like these people that compare everyone to Nazis and communists and the rest of it, but I see the instinct. In the question of like, what would you do in some moment in history where something bad was happened? I have a sense of what I, what these people would do is that, you know, ratting people out, m- mobbing, mobbing them, as I think that's the Swedish word, mobbing them, you know, ganging up on them is, is, a, is a horrible thing that these people seem to enjoy. And the amazing thing about it is that, you know, how can you sit there pushing, pushing your, your editors and the union or whoever to go after this guy, because when you think about it, this is a guy who has been cleared. And because context mattered, is that's what Dean Baquet said. And then he was brought up in charges again because he had previously been cleared. And Dean Baquet said, well, context doesn't matter. And so he's guilty. And then he goes and Dean Baquet comes out again and says, I was mistaken, context matters. I mean, these people can't even keep a fucking narrative. 
I mean, it's confused every second of the way. They change their mind every two seconds. And that is something that should kind of, you know, make people question this. I mean, if you have a journalistic instinct and everyone is changing their story, what, what would the New York Times do if they were getting information like this from somebody who they were investigating, where it was going back and forth and flipping around and nobody could get a, a straight narrative and they were giving these bullshit, you know, PR statements. I mean, that's the point of the New York Times is not to actually create those things. It's to blow those things up. And that's what journalists do. And these are journalists that are actually creating those things, these obfuscations and these, you know, and the fact that nobody that I see online, you know, they fall for the stuff every time. You know, this is so easy. Like, you know, this is the purge trials. And I keep on mentioning this. People come back and they say, well, you know, we saw what happened. I mean, you saw that uh, Bukharin confessed. I mean, it took me two seconds to find 50 tweets from blue checkmark people on Twitter saying he wasn't fired. He quit. I mean, come fired, fuck quit. on. Or, or the ones who said, like, well, the Daily Beast, you know, in their initial reporting, they said he said some really awful things back there. Yeah, yeah. Like the sexist stuff. Don't forget the sexist stuff. Um, there was, like, whispers that it must be much worse than what they originally advertised. It's like, you think they wouldn't have led with the most possibly uncharitable yeah. take? Come yeah. on. And usually this uh, creates a flood of bullshit follow-up accusations from people who work with somebody over the years and say, I remember the one time where he said this and I took it to mean this. And it doesn't seem like a lot of that has happened um, this time around. Which, some of it some of it did uh, from his own uh, account and he was expressed regret uh, at, uh, at like, hey, I thought that, that colleague who I haven't talked to in 15 years that we were cool, I guess not. But it's so um, wad. He's, you're fucking, he's an asshole. Yeah. I mean... The newspaper asshole. It's a, it's an actual stock character for a reason. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's... it. You know, he's an, he's an asshole. He likes being an asshole. That's his personality. And, you know, these poor little kids couldn't, couldn't take it. And if there's anything more emblematic of the age that we're in now is that this guy was undone by 15-year-olds. His career was undone <laughs> by 15-year-olds. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Has anyone stopped for a second and said, we're living in a crazy, crazy world and something has to be done about it? I mean, it's madness. 15-year-old kids saying, my feelings were hurt by having a conversation. No one claims that the man said something with ill intent. But Michael, he lost the newsroom. Yeah. Who fucking cares? What do you need the newsroom for? Make you, write your own imagine? fucking stories. Lost Maybe you can imagine, uh, Michael. Uh, but Camille, can you imagine someone coming to you? Camille. You've lost Freethink, man. You've lost you lost yeah. the staff. Yeah. yeah. They, they think that this I'm not black shit has gone too far. Um, but look, I mean, but look, it is it is possible, right? Yeah. It's possible that you have the sort of toxic culture where they say we don't want to work with people who have ideas that aren't identical to our own mm -hmm. in these various ways. And the universe of things that are described when I say these various ways it, it expands to the point where it includes absolutely everything. <laughs> like, that's entirely possible. Yeah. And you, you know what? Them. In a very real sense, I don't want to work in that place either. You fire them. Like at some point you want to leave. Look, you could fire half the newsroom. You should. Or you could decide, or you could decide that you want to be hostage to them and you want to do what they say. There are people that and sign we'll this see, letter and, and we'll they see how long that works. And it's not, it's not obvious to me that this goes on forever and ever. I can't. This is... Yeah, that this is the trajectory of things. Um, yeah. There's and, a terror and, in this. And I guarantee you that of the 150 people that contributed to that, that letter, maybe 70 of them, 60 of them 
didn't really truly believe it or thought that like really this isn't an offense that deserves this kind of scrutiny. But you don't want to be the person that doesn't sign it. You don't want to be the last per the, the, the you know the first person to stop clapping at a Kim Jong Un speech. You want to be the last. That's why yeah. that's why it goes on for so long. I mean, <laughs> and beyond beyond the times, like we we all know people in journalism at various publications who have seen similar circumstances mm-hmm. where there's been some some group letter that has been circulating mm-hmm. throughout the office. I have talked to dozens of people who get those letters and have to agonize over whether or not to sign they them. And sign most them. of the time they decide to sign. Oh, usually, yeah. Even even when they don't mean it. I've seen it happen where they're signing those letters and they're signing them to to endorse something not merely that they disagree with, but that they know not to be true. That this person is a savage monster. That's and terrible. I'm signing That's it terrible. because I feel like I have to in order to preserve my well-being in this particular The only place. people I've ever seen brutalized for signing a letter were people like but you were one of them who signed a pretty banal, like probably too banal letter oh, yeah. for, to Harper's sure. about, you know, the value of free speech. Those people were like, look at this loser. Look at this, you know, uh, Milo yeah. Yiannopoulos uh, alt-right defending person. His, defending his white privilege. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. t- that's how you get criticized. Yeah. Although speaking of Harper's, the uh, publisher and like yeah. nine thousand generation grandee John D. MacArthur, uh, John R. MacArthur, sorry, um, Grandpa was John D. Um, he had a uh, a piece translated from the French <laughs> in his own magazine <laughs> that he wrote, um, uh, but going about the McNeil affair and saying it's all McCarthyism yeah. and this woke shit's got to stop. Like it's it it is uh, you know like it's. The ogre Murdoch is the only one to defend liberal values anymore. What have we come to? It's, uh, it's pretty uh, interesting and to watch. If we, if we look, I would hope and I would expect that this to be from both of you guys too. And I know it's true that if there was a similar instinct that was enveloping the right libertarians, something that wasn't just the people that kind of exist in the New York Times ecosystem, that I would be vehemently against that too. This is not about politics, and this is the thing that has confused everybody. People think that this is a political argument, that if I'm on this side, then you have to be on the other side of it. This is something that hopefully we could all be on the same side. But what has happened, of course, is the argument is so hard to defeat. It's so hard to defeat that you have to start saying, rather than actually say, well, I don't believe that these people should have these ideas in the newsroom, you have to both you know, lie about it, or you have to claim that it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as cancel. There's no such people aren't being canceled. I don't believe in this cancel culture thing. It's accountability culture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and of course, this is the same problem that I had with, um, you know, is it okay to punch a Nazi? You know, on on paper, yeah, I'm fine with that. I don't like. I think Nazis are the worst people on the planet. Is it okay to make people accountable for so horrible things to say? Of course, yeah, I totally understand that too. But it's 2021, and who's a Nazi is a rather elastic definition now, as is what should be accounted for. And if these were the same things that had to be accounted for 10, 15 years ago, maybe I'd be a little more um, accepting of it. It's the same thing people used to say about there's no such thing as PC. It's just being polite. (laughs) Well. It's not. It's not. That's not what it is at all. People were polite to Donald McNeil. And uh, granted, he doesn't sound like a very polite guy. No. But they called him racist. Lots of them. 
blue check mark for weeks. Oh God, and still I, dis- I disagree with your reading. He seems like a perfectly pleasant man. And I don't, <laughs> I don't think that he seems like a curmudgeon at all. I, I like him and I would be happy if I was a young person to take a trip with him and, and to chat with him about all manner of things, including guns, germs, and steel. Donald, have you ever heard of a band called NWA? Can you tell me what that acronym stands for? Just, I don't remember. <laughs> Honestly, do you really think he hasn't? Do you really oh think he hasn't? Oh my yeah. God, that would be so like, good. I'm, I'm confident he has. You should do that like um, as a quiz show, like just like with like journalists <laughs> and like, oh, let's just play a quiz and then pretend to pull up a card that's like, the rap group from California's NWA, what does that acronym stand for? It doesn't watch people be like, I, lo- I don't know. I lose this round. Speaking, speaking of NWA, uh-huh. brand new Netflix documentary, yeah. a Notorious Big documentary yeah, on good. Netflix, which is really it's good. Quite good. It's good. I and like probably it. quite good because it is not obsessed with whether or not mm-hmm. he was murdered by Diddy or the police or something else, mm-hmm. some other conspiracy theory. It's just a really great documentary flick about Biggie's life yeah. um, and specifically about the time period when he was, was getting on when he was getting put on. And it's got all this great like footage that was shot by his crew, yeah. like following him around in those early, early days of his ascent to superstardom, which happened rather fast. And um, I mean, I was struck by a couple of things. One, um, I was struck by just how young he was mm-hmm. uh, at the time of his death um, and his ascent is just it's kind of kind of nuts. It reminds me how old I am as well. Um, but two, I was also struck by the fact that this film was directed by a person who probably doesn't self identify <laughs> as a person of color, <laughs> which is which seems extraordinary mm. um, in some respects because at the moment. It is all the rage to ensure that these things are made by such people, which is which I mean, seems like a choice that was made probably by the executive producer on the project, uh, Sean, Sean. Or maybe maybe. (laughs) I'm sorry. Who's that? Sean Combs. Does he have any other names? Uh huh. Sean Combs. Diddy. (laughs) Uh, No, I wonder if like if it's 99 percent of the stuff happens like it normally does anyways, which is to say the straight white actress can play the Latina in the cartoon and no one cares because there's too many fucking cartoons, right? No, no, that, that, that isn't happening anymore. We, we, no, that's not happening. Is it, or is it just that that we hear, we hear about the edge cases constantly. It's just like, I mean, I, I, uh, to bring it all always back to teachers unions, um, you know, (laughs) today or, you know, the, uh, uh, I think it was the, uh, teachers union from Los Angeles, said, oh, thanks, Governor Newsom, for rolling out your plan to bring school back all the way up to second grade. (laughs) That's how advanced they are in California. But sorry, you're just perpetuating a system of white privilege. Um, And so, like, I'm attuned to that story when people do that. It happened in Chicago. It happened to Cambridge, Mass. It happened uh, here. It's happened in at least a half a dozen places that I can name. But maybe, you know, there's tens of thousands of school districts in the country and usually it doesn't happen we're just attuned to the thing when it happens because it's so outrageous yet maybe hopefully like what happens normally most of the time is the normal well, well it's rare I it's think rarely the, the issue noticed. is that it's being you know 
And it's rarely noticed, and it's only noticed when the the actor themselves calls attention to it, and it's for their yeah. own purposes, right? I mean, they're like, Look how good when, when the series is ended, the people are seeking it out now, Moynihan. It's different. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a there was a Vox column in December of last year that referred to the practice of actors voicing characters who are not of their race. Yeah. Again, this is all ridiculous. I'm I'm gesticulating wildly. Because it doesn't make any fucking sense. They're cartoon characters. Yeah. Um, what race so, is SpongeBob? <laughs> what what race are the Simpsons? Yeah. They're yellow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. But but you're voicing a character that's of the wrong race. This is racism. Mm-hmm. How voice actors are fighting to change an industry that renders them invisible. The subhead is from Big Mouth to Apu animation reckons with racism in voice acting reckons i love it wait so just to be clear camille it said this is racism is in the head no I'm, I'm saying they're describing it as racism from big mouth to apu animation reckons with racism in voice acting like that's okay so let me let me ask a question if somebody said um they are going to do a version of death of a salesman mm-hmm. and they are going to cast as willie loman um Denzel Washington. God, that would be so great. people came up and said, you know what? Denzel Washington is not... It's clear that Willie Loman's not black. Yeah, you can't say that. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work in reverse. Only works in run direction. It doesn't work that way. So it is racist. They're right. But it is racist (laughs) to say that only one race can play a cartoon character. That's mental. And I also would think that we're poorer, you know, viewing public if there were remakes of something and there were not interchanged races that because if it had no sure. bearing on the plot if it wasn't about a black man's struggle in south africa and it, <laughs> you know and it's played by tim robbins i mean that may be like i don't know if about that but, 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 uh, great. But yeah great. yeah yeah i i, I want to add one thing wow. too by the the um the uh, uh biggie tim fan. robbins as nelson Mandela. <laughs> right itself <laughs> it could be they could be pretty yeah, strong great. actually um no blackface because that would be offensive. I watched, but otherwise, totally fine. Vanilla Mandela. Vanilla that's, Mandela. That's, that's, that's Vanilla Mandela. Take up that wow. white man's burden. Yeah. Shit. That's the yeah. that oh, Vanilla Mandela. Dear God, that's going um, on the movie poster. That's, that sounds like a black exploitation movie from the seventies yeah, or something, yeah. but the other direction. It's like this like, summer, like the Black Gestapo, which I mentioned yeah. one time, which is a good movie. Uh, Vanilla Mandela. <laughs> uh, no, but on the on the Biggie thing, there was a it was a good doc. I, I thank yeah. you for recommending it, Camille. Um, the two greatest things about it were number one, as I texted you, his mother is the greatest character in the history of anything. She's amazing, and she's Jamaican. So I'm surprised you didn't point that out. That uh, she she's still mad that he was he brought crack into the house, and he was like she's like mad about yeah. it on camera now, and it's absolutely hilarious. She's like, no, nah, boy, I don't <laughs> oh care God. if he's dead. That's like the worst literally said that you do. Literally so says you know. <laughs> that's I've never even tried that. That's by the way, uh, Tobago. It's not Trinidad. It's just Tobago. Thank you. Um, but she uh, is amazing in it. But the other thing that is weird is that these guys are really smart. Some of these guys, like, there's a main character here who shoots all the footage mm-hmm. that they kind of get. The guy was shooting everything at the time, and his name's D-Rock. And he was a bit of a minor minor member of the Junior Mafia, or minor rapper himself. And he went to jail, by the way. He went to jail for a you know, pretty long stretch, too. Wait, he and did they interview him a lot Is that right? in the film. Oh, I, didn't, I missed did. that. Yeah, he did. And 
there's another guy who they shoot in a church who's another of these guys, like kind of corner boys from Fulton and uh, up on Fulton and, mm-hmm. and Washington and stuff. They're, they're, like, they're amazingly smart. And it's amazing these guys that just like, you know, never graduated high school, were pulled into this game when they were like 16 or they voluntarily became part of it, 15 or 16. And you interview them now after all this shit and, you know, young person macho nonsense is over and they're talking about it and they're, I, I'm impressed by it. They're not, they're not just, you know, hoodlums because that's how they portray themselves. I mean, they're the junior mafia. They talk about like in the lyrics of all those biggie songs. And the, but the best thing about the whole documentary is that it reminds people that there was a rapper named Biggie Smalls who was white. And uh, uh, look him up right now. It is the funniest shit you've ever seen. And he, oh, no. <laughs> there's a moment where where Biggie's being interviewed and he's like, they're like, Biggie Smalls. like, yo, I can't talk about it. And he's like up in his nasal thing. He's like, I can't be called Biggie Smalls. He's like, there's another guy. Yeah, don't call guy. me that anymore. He threatened to sue me. He threatened to sue me. He didn't say anything, but he threatened to sue me. And if you look at this guy, he looks like like vanilla ice crossed with uh, that guy from Canada, Snow, who had the song Informer. Do you remember <laughs> that? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talking about fake Jamaican accents. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I, li- I lick your boom boom down. Yes, I lick Which your boom I don't really. That is very strange. Whatever you've got going on there. Love wins, and that's fine, but that's unusual. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so, yeah, his Biggie Smalls with a Z at the, at the end of it, and his name is Tim Bigelow. Um, and if you can find, like, there is a picture of it. It is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Hey, uh, Camille, when are you going to get your vaccine? I don't know. Michael and I. I don't know. Well, this is the problem when you're in. Are you skeptical because you're black? One, I'm not black. Uh, Two, of course I am. Three. (laughs) Three. The second answer (laughs) negates the first answer. Three. I'm so incredibly healthy that I don't have to worry about this sort of thing. It's not about that. It's about being able to go out and show people the vaccine thing and like get it on with them. It's amazing. Oh, well, I don't, yeah. I don't do that because I'm super married. I could get it on with my wife, even if she has COVID. So it's like, it's, fine. What are you talking about? I'm just saying, I, I can. Truth. I can. I know the truth. So long as she's willing. <laughs> um, uh, which, which reminds me, I don't know why, um, but our, our friend Van Latham, who was on the podcast, actually just had a conversation mm. with Ibram Kendi. Uh, on his podcast, oh, wow. yeah, and I, I listened to it. I got I got a name checked in it, um, and uh, by Candy well, or by well, Van? Van Van mentioned that he and I spoke recently and asked Ibram if he if he knew if he knew who I was. I recently did a podcast. Uh, I was I did a podcast called The Fifth Column, and I went back and forth with a gentleman named Kamel Foster. Are you familiar with this gentleman? I've heard of yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I, I don't want to be seen to be you know, responding to this conversation that they had all after the fact, you know, and, and, and not having been involved. But there was a brief moment where Kendi referred to this interesting study that seems to indicate that black men have a higher likelihood of incarceration relative to white people um, or white young men of the same age, regardless of income. So a higher likelihood of incarceration regardless of income. And this was of particular interest to Van, who asked Kendi to you know, repeat it and to give some context for it. And all Kendi really seemed to be able to do was assert that to the extent this is true, that this is obviously an example of racism. Uh, well, then thirdly, when they argue about class, I asked them, well, how do you explain that the children of black millionaires are more likely to be incarcerated than the children of high school dropouts. 
that are white. Then how do you, if it's about class, how do you Wait, explain? Wait, what? Is that a real stat? Yes. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you explain that? Doctor, doctor, could you restate that really quickly? Just, 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 I am so sorry to interrupt you, brother. No. I am so sorry. Could you restate that before I fucking lose my mind? Could you restate that really quickly for people? Sure. So the children, black male children of uh, millionaire black families uh, are more likely, in, particularly in the, with the millennial generation, uh, to be incarcerated than, than the white, ch- white male children of working class uh, white families. Um, I believe the same study indicates that black and white offspring of the wealthiest groups in these surveys had about the same likelihood of going to prison, but whatever. Let's set that aside for the moment. And let's just presume that Kendi's claim is true. What does it say? How do we adjudicate this? What does this mean? This is where it gets interesting. As I've said before, I don't know that simply describing a dynamic like that, some sort of odd uh, manifestation of racial disparities, even one that seems to persist across different income groups, even one that seems to persist over time, I don't know that that actually explains much of anything. And, And quite frankly, there's like a universe of super interesting questions that one could ask when they're confronted with a fact like this. Do we see the same kind of disparity across different groups of quote-unquote black people, people of different backgrounds, perhaps, people um, who are new immigrants to the community who ostensibly ought to look the same, but perhaps don't necessarily share all of the other attributes that might or may not correspond to someone having a higher likelihood of incarceration. But of course, it gets more interesting than that. You know, is a disparity like this something that is also true of other racial groups? Do you see a disparity of that sort either in favor of or against white young men when compared to, say, people of Asian background or people who are presumed to be of the Asian race, whatever the hell that means? If you don't see it, why? Why not? Is it true for all kinds of crime? Are we talking about violent crime in particular? Are we talking about theft? This seems to matter. Is this national? Is it regional? To to state my position on these things as clearly as I can, it is not that there is no likelihood that racism plays a role in the disparities that we see in the world around us. That is not my view. My view is that the world is complicated and complex phenomena like are probably happening (laughs) for complicated reasons. And Mm. more directly, that anyone who screams systemic racism is merely labeling things and is not actually explaining what's going on. So if you care about these problems and you want to fix said problems, if you care about the disparities even, and I'm not sure that we ought to, one has to be serious. And there's nothing serious about ignoring substantive criticism. And there's nothing serious about pretending that complicated things are not complicated. Mm. I don't know that the world is made a much better place for lack of intercourse between people like Ibram Kendi and folks like myself, folks who are 
likely to ask them challenging questions about facts that they may parade out in the hopes of demonstrating something that they obviously believe and not exposing people to the complexity of the real world. I mean, just put this out there for you, Ibram. Uh, it doesn't really make sense that we haven't had a conversation. Van, told you. It was perfectly cordial. It's fine. Nobody got hurt. No bones broken. Everybody walked away from it. And people say they loved it. Van and I, at this point, our audiences have cross-pollinated. You want to reach some people? You want to help them be anti-racist? Talk to your boy. Talk to your boy. Break bread with me and help me help you or help you help me. See what I did there? You don't know who wins. He, he doesn't. He doesn't need you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. He doesn't, need, doesn't me. need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't um, need to talk to me. But he should. He should because it's far better to engage with me directly than to set up these three different personas of the people who disagree with you. Because none of those personas are me. Like none of them actually fit. Um, but it's cool. It's cool. I, I'm. I'm delighted that you know, um, which means you're paying some attention, and that's good. You should. Because there'll be more things soon. Have you have you reached out to him? Um, yeah, at some point. Not recently, because it's it's become it quite obvious that there's not really an appetite for an exchange. But we'll do it again. Do it again. Yeah, sure. No, do, do, and he can't hurt. Just keep asking until he says, you know, that's how a lot of people get their wives to marry. Mm. Just keep, keep asking them out until they say, yeah. Stick with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's why I've, you know, I'm not currently married. Because you Because you gave up? You won't ask. No, because I just go around asking people constantly and they're like, Could you please fuck off? <laughs> what about the lick your boom boom part? Do you get to that? Lick your boom boom? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 When I, I've got my uh, COVID vaccination card yeah. around my neck in like a lacrosse lanyard <laughs> and I just boom, go around. Yeah. Cuomoing oh people, like being like kissing them on the lips and be like, hey, what do you talk? I was in Italian wedding. And they're like, what? And I'm like, I got the no COVID. You don't like uh, the COVID. And the next thing you know, I got yeah, a I'm, girlfriend. I'm not wrong about I'm not wrong about this though. Like the Chris Cuomo, not the Chris Cuomo, the, the governor, Andrew Cuomo um situation is very much the case that to the extent you don't think this matters, like the fudging numbers on COVID deaths for political reasons. Um, even if it's because you're so afraid of the Trump administration, who you'd been just vehemently going after publicly, um, to say nothing of the various allegations of you know misconduct and harassment, and culture of harassment in your offices. I don't know much about those allegations. Um, to say to suggest that you don't think these are important stories that are worth covering, to the extent you say that, only partisanship could actually motivate you to believe mm. that. Like, who could actually think that it doesn't matter whether or not the governor of a major state, a state that's in the midst, in the throes of uh, the worst fighting, the very front lines of the COVID crisis that has implications for the rest of the country. If we get it wrong there, this has huge implications for everyone else. And in many respects, we did. Like, th that's a huge deal. It's a huge mm. deal if you fucked it up and you lied about it. And you covered it up so that we couldn't actually get real good data on what was going on and what the transmission rates were looking like. That has implications for everyone. And it, yeah. you should be investigated. Down, you should be fired. Be, you should be run out of office. Of that. 
That's exactly right. Which no, is I incredible. Mean, look, like conservatives are complaining about this and they're wrong. They're like, nobody's paying attention to covering this. The New York Times is covering this a lot. And they're they're really kind of covering it hard now, the sexual harassment stuff. And it's like, I really wish you guys had covered the dead people as much as you'd covered the wedding story. You know, one <laughs> seems to be one of, more consequential to me, you know, that uh, that old people are dying and you're lying about it. Uh, than the one that's you know you're 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 kind of it's, a gross pig. Uh, if these reports, I mean, to be the, there's now three reports on the sexual harassment stuff, and I uh, read up on them a little bit, and um, it is he was with someone. If you take her at her word, she's 25, an underling in his office with the door closed, and he's like, uh, you know, what do you think about dating older uh, men? Because I I think dating young women's pretty great. <laughs> Also, it's been a long time since I've hugged somebody. Right? Like, yeah, I like the, you like the hug. I like the hug. He's a spicy meatball. Come on, man, hug of the hug of hug of the gov. What, what do you think happened there? Is 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 he just like always a monster, or is he like believing well, I mean, his own bullshit with all the? My love question gov is stuff? like, uh, is that it's gross? That's gross. It's just like it's gross, and it's in yeah. keeping with other parts of his. Thing. But, is, but is that is the word monster? Is, is that the word to describe that? The wedding guy, you know, with the hands, uh, look at those spicy cheeks. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. eat the whole eat the whole sausage. He, yeah. Yeah. He, and the extent of his. <laughs> although although she says she wasn't offended by that at all, which I think that matters. matters. So it's fine in the. <laughs> In she the three events, it's just two people having a having yeah. a sausage. I like it's it. Fine. This sausage. Three <laughs> events, <laughs> one kiss. <laughs> is that a monster? Uh-huh. I mean, and also, maybe, maybe know, it is. I've read a few of these things, and I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, I need a little more info on it than than just. Uh, I know you're not allowed to say that. You're supposed to convict people from the, the word "go." Um, but even though it's Andrew Cuomo, I don't really care about the politics of it. Um, there were a few elements that I was like, hmm, skeptical of. But you know what? All they always come out. And that's the thing that you can't do. You cannot live in a world, in a society, where the number of people create a conviction because you don't need courts at that point. You just need 10 people to come forward and say, well, clearly, you know, we don't even need to have a trial. I mean, it's 10 people that have come forward. Um, the guy is hugely famous, right? And now it's, it's different here that there are people in his office. So that's totally different. I mean, when they come out of the woodwork from all over the country – and then, like, you know, what happened with Brett Kavanaugh, and it turned out a few of them had never met him and, like, were lying. Um, but these are all, you know, the calls coming from inside the house. And so that makes it a little, a little more curious. So, I mean, also, you know, the kissing, that's, it's weird, right? I mean, but it, it, what, is the, what is the factor that's weird about this? Honestly, just being, I'm, you know, asking a question, just, is it because he's married? Because if he wasn't married... And he tried to kiss a lady at a wedding because, you know, people hook up at weddings and stuff. Is it the age difference? Is that what's weird about it? Because it was just like if you take every other factor, some guy misreads a signal and tries to kiss. She says, no, then OK. But it's the other factor. The dude, was it at the Washington Post? Um, who just. Yeah. Yeah. Who got, I think pretty. Um, and I don't haven't really seen his byline much since then. I'm, I'm afraid his, his career might have taken a pretty strong hit. Um from this and he just sounded like a guy who was awkward at parties a journalist <laughs> next you'll be talking to me it's a about, new story if a journalist isn't fucking awkward at parties. next you'll be telling me about libertarians at parties um hey 
They're like journalists on mm. crack. That's like a that's like a double Actually, journalist. That sounds like a party. Um, <laughs> um, and by the way, the thing that uh, my favorite locution that came out of all of this stuff was unwanted kiss. It's like, how do you know? I mean, what is the what is this world where you're going to live in where people will be like, the kiss is wanted now? Like, okay, go. Cool. I, I go in now. Like, yeah. yes, I mean, that is, is a potential like, world. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. that's a world that you could live you in. You're halfway in. And it's like, those, is the kiss you know, wanted? Spontaneity. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's not the unwanted kiss. It's that if you n- find out that it's really unwanted and you keep going, that's horrible. <laughs> but the second, like, you should be able to judge in two seconds, like, whoa, I misread yeah. that situation. And then you you walk away, you know, and be like, shit, I, I would be profusely apologized. But this never happened no. to me because it's it, I not just wanted. can't find someone who's not desperate to just make out Especially with Especially without that COVID lanyard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the COVID lanyard is like, it's all wanted kisses, man. Well, we we should probably wrap this up because this no. has been a, a very unusual, strange dispatch yeah. anyhow. So it'll be interesting to see how all this work, fucking yeah. thing cuts together. Uh, we got some things for next week. I, I should ask you guys what you think before I, I, I throw it out there. Oh, um, and thank you for all for the Patreon subscribers. Thank you for all the um, oh, kind yeah. words about yeah. the historian, uh, historian episode yeah. that's uh, the inaugural pilot episode mm-hmm. uh, with Duncan White from Harvard University and the author of Cold Warriors. If you haven't listened to it, you know, when you haven't signed up, sign up and listen to it. And um, uh, keep the suggestions coming for people who who you want me to talk to because there's been a lot of fine ones and um, I'm just queuing them and uh, better if I've read the book, but if not, maybe I'll, maybe I'll read the book if you suggest that I should and we'll get them on the show. Yeah. All right. Well, let's right. wrap this Bye. damn thing up. Bye. Bye. Boy. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column.